0: We've just had a time of prayer together it reminded me uh, of New Year's Eve, where about a similar number uh, of people, perhaps a few more gathered at Warwick Stadium, but these were people from all kinds of different churches, and uh, we gathered together to thank God for the year that had been, 2023, and to commit to him 2024 as we entered it um, at the stroke of midnight, and uh, what we aimed to do was uh, to be celebrating communion together on the stroke of midnight as a broader Christian community. Um, And it was a wonderful moment of unity as we did that, as we remembered who it is and what it is that actually gives us our identity and that sense of mission together and that sense of belonging with one another. But it's actually not a really straightforward thing because as people who come from all kinds of different church backgrounds, what we understand about communion and therefore how we experience communion is actually quite different in all those different places. Um, So as much as communion is one of those things that just brings us to the heart of the gospel message and brings us together as the people of God, as we'll discover as we spend time together in God's word this morning, it's also something that over the course of church history has caused a fair few problems. I can name various councils where Christian leaders and theologians have gotten together and tried to sort out their differences on this topic and gone away unreconciled Um, and in some cases it got very very heated and they had to um, confess and often with tears they'd they'd kind of deal with the relational uh, stress that had been part of that situation and they had to learn to figure out well how do we uh, live together as the church and how do we partner on mission but we can't quite get on the same page on this thing called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion it's actually something that requires some careful thought so we're going to do some of that today. We're not going to do all of it because there are so many issues that are involved in communion that we can't cover them all today. But what we are going to do is focus on communion in the Gospels, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, just to get a handle on how communion took shape in the early church. How did Jesus institute it? How was it practiced by his first followers? And what can we learn from them as we reflect on God's word together? And my hope is that in our time together today, we'll discern how God is calling us as a local church family to participate in communion together, that you will be feeling better equipped to discern for yourself whether you participate and how you participate, because these are important things to consider. As a result of doing this together, we trust that God will help us to be more closely in communion with him and one another as we honour Christ in this way in our gatherings. Let me begin with the Bible in one of the passages that tells the story of Jesus asking his disciples to take communion. And uh, as I always say, um, look at it in your own Bibles if you're able to. It's always so much better to have it in your lap or on your device, um, but it is on the screen for you as well. In Luke 22, we read of how Jesus institutes what we celebrate as we share communion every week. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, this occasion is what we call the Last Supper. It's the last time that Jesus will eat and drink the Passover meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And recognising that the Lord's Supper or communion was instituted at the Passover matters. The setting really matters. There's some history here. The story of communion doesn't begin at the Last Supper. It begins on the very opening line of the Bible, and it continues to the last line of the Bible. It begins with the very first words of creation and ends when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. And the Passover meal, which Jesus longed to celebrate with his disciples, tells the story of one very important chapter in that story, when God rescued Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt and through Moses gave them the rules for living that would characterize them as a nation belonging to God. And this meal looks forward to what Jesus would do and what we are about to learn more about as he unpacks it for his disciples and as he goes through the events of the next several days. But in the very, uh, even in that context of the Passover meal, what we see happening is this regular, through a meal, reenactment and remembrance, one, of how God had saved them as a nation And two, how they were then to live as a nation that had been saved by God. And that's all really important parts of the Passover story. How did God save us? And then what did he save us to do and be as a result? And those of you who were here for the Passover meal last year, you got to hear some of that history and to see some of the symbolism and and how the biblical story was woven into a meal and just how amazing that was. I hope we'll do something similar again this year. But as you look at that passage in Luke 22, there might be something that surprises you a little bit um, as you think about how we take communion and what you see written uh, on the screen in front of you. Um, Some of you might have noticed that it says, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. And you might be thinking, But hang on, didn't the bread come first? Well, for those who are familiar with the Passover, you'll remember there are four cups that are drunk through the meal. Uh, Those cups are very significant and they symbolise different things. This was the first or second of those, but it's not yet communion as we understand it. This is just the part of the Passover where Jesus is explaining the context of what's going on. He's about to institute the Lord's Supper or communion, so we need to read on to see how he does that. And he took bread. Gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This is it. This is what we do in communion. We take some bread and we drink from a cup in remembrance of Jesus. And it matters that we think very carefully about this every time we take communion. And we'll come back to the details of what we're remembering in a moment. But first, let's listen to Jesus as he finishes what he's saying in this passage. He goes on to say, But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. The fact that even Judas was included in Jesus' institution of communion is important for us to consider as well, so file that bit of information away for later. Now, as you read the Gospels, you find that the Last Supper is described very similarly in each of the synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark and Luke. So, we've just read it in Luke. The way you'll read it in Matthew and Mark is very, very similar to what we've just read together. But as is usually the case, John's Gospel gives us a different angle. John's Gospel does not mention Jesus asking us to remember him through the bread and the cup. It doesn't mention the new covenant It mentions a new command. As John 13 tells the story of the Last Supper, it describes Jesus doing what? Do you remember? As they gather together for the meal, uh, it describes him washing their feet. And Jesus tells them that they ought to follow his example of how to love one another humbly and sincerely and sacrificially. And then after Judas has left the meal to go and betray Jesus, Jesus says this to the remaining disciples. From John 13, verse 34 and 35, we read, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So as we think about how the Last Supper is described in the four Gospels, the Last Supper in Matthew, Mark and Luke tells us how to know we are saved. There's a new covenant that Jesus makes between us and God, and it's a covenant that is described, as I said earlier, from the first pages of the Bible to the last. It's a big story, but what it comes down to is this. God can accept us into his eternal family on the basis that Jesus has atoned for our sins, which once separated us from God. And Jesus' resurrection is the proof that the penalty for sin has been paid and God will grant eternal life to all who trust in Jesus. This is the agreement that God has made with us. You don't need to atone for your own sins. You are unable to atone for your own sins. You can't behave well enough to act like a real member of my family. It's beyond you. You're human. You're fallen. I'm divine. But here's what I will do for you. This is the covenant. I will atone for your sins I will pay the penalty that they deserve. I will forgive you and welcome into you, you into my family and give you new life by which you can start living the kind of life that a member of my family lives. By my strength, you will be able to become like Jesus, my son. That's all being symbolised in communion. And it's really good news. No matter who we are, what our heritage is, what our history is, every single person has the right to become a child of God through faith in Jesus. Because it was never about what we could do for God. It was all about what God has done for us. That is the agreement. And our task is just to receive it through faith. And this is the proof that God's love for us has overcome every barrier. humanity stooped so low that not only did we reject our creator and go our own way and ignore his good commands for us, but when he visited us in person, we hung him on a cross like a common criminal. Um, What worse could we do to God to earn his wrath? But yet what does he actually give us? He gives us his love. No matter what we have done, his love is greater. He longs to forgive us and welcome us into the family we were created for. And every time we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded of the strength of God's love. We are remembered what it achieved for us in the death of Christ on our behalf. And you can tell this story from passages in the Old Testament. And you can tell this story from passages in the New Testament. And you can tell this story from the experiences of those who have received it. And you can tell this story by celebrating some of the great songs that the saints through the years have written to to glorify God for what he has done. You can tell this story in so many different ways. And it matters that we tell that story every time we take the bread and the cup, because this is what it's all about. It is all about Jesus. It is all about what he's done so that we can be in his family. The Synoptic Gospels make that very clear in how they describe uh, Jesus' institution of the bread and the cup, what we call the the Lord's Supper. However, John's focus in telling the story of the Last Supper is a little bit different. In John... Whoops... The story of the Last Supper isn't so much telling us how to know we are saved by what Jesus has done for us. John concentrates on what it means for us to show we are saved. Similarly, in the way that the Passover meal told the story of how God saved the nation of Israel, but it, the story didn't stop at him saving them, he then gave them the instructions for how to live as his people. So in John, he has already celebrated, and we'll, in future, God willing, we'll go back and explore some of the passages where John explains that. Uh, but having celebrated already in his letter how God has saved us, as he tells the story of the Last Supper, John emphasises the way that we are meant to then live that way and show we are saved show that we have received this wonderful agreement that we have through Christ. There's a new command that identifies those who belong to God. And we partake in communion in the context of a community that is defined by love. Judas had left the meal. Jesus knew that Judas wasn't a sincere follower... In fact, he was a traitor, but to those who did trust in him, to those who did receive his command with a desire to obey it, he asked them to do this, to love one another in the way he loved them. And both of these things were clearly part of the way the first Christians celebrated communion together. They did both of these elements. They proclaimed the Lord's death until he comes. They, they shared the message of what Jesus' death means for us and the relationship we have with God as a result. But they did it in the context of a loving community and the both those things were meant to go together. This is the very first description of church life in the book of Acts and uh, many of you will know this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I wonder if when you think of the breaking of bread, your mind might go to a church service similar to what we do, and you might think of communion in the way that we celebrate it. It wasn't actually the way things were done at that time, but we'll continue reading. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number... Those who are being saved. It kind of sounds to me as I read that passage, and it's always been one of my favourite passages of Scripture. And I've got to be careful because I say that about a lot of passages of Scripture. But it's the Bible is amazing, isn't it? So you read that and go, "Oh, I love that!" And isn't that exactly what Jesus asked them to do in John thirteen? Didn't he say to to love one another as I have loved you? And then you see the church beginning, the Holy Spirit's being poured out on them, enabling them to live like Jesus. They're remembering Jesus as they meet together and they're loving each other in very practical ways. They're providing for each other's needs. They're enjoying having fellowship together. They're savouring together the teaching of the apostles. They're celebrating communion in the context of a shared family meal. And we read that described in a bunch of places through the Bible. um, And we also read it in numerous uh, manuscripts that we have from various Uh, uh, you might call them early church fathers or those who were observing what was going on in the life of the early church So, uh, in the New Testament, as well as in other historical records, particularly from the next 50 to 200 years, the kind of breaking bread together, as it talks about, that they did in their homes also involved the celebration of communion in a very similar way to what Jesus did at the Passover. We're having a meal together, and at a certain point in the meal, I'm going to really focus in on what this cup and this bread means. So, the early church, they would have a meal together, and at a certain point, we think it was mostly toward the end, similar to what Jesus did at Passover, they would really focus in on what the shared cup and what the shared bread meant for them. It was the the source of the life that they enjoyed together. So to put it in our context, imagine having a church lunch on a Sunday and celebrating communion at the end. It was that kind of experience. They obey the new command uh, in their fellowship and their service of each other in the meal and they proclaim the new covenant in taking communion together during that time. However, there were some issues that started popping up in this time that the Christians were spending together. So if you can imagine, they're coming together, they're sharing fellowship, there's a whole lot of things going on and they're eating together and as part of their meal together they're celebrating communion. But in uh, a bunch of places we read that some things were just going a little bit off kilter and they weren't happening the way that they ought to have been happening. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5 we read there was a man in the church who was sinning in some ways that even the Gentile community around them did not find acceptable. And the church wasn't significantly concerned about it. In fact, they were arrogant in their sense of, oh, we don't have to worry about that. And the Apostle Paul reminds them, and go and have a read in 1 Corinthians 5 later, he reminds them of the death of Jesus for our sins using the language of the Passover meal. And he goes on to say that they should not be eating together with this man. He needed to know that his conduct did not fit with Jesus or his church. And he should be excluded from the meal that is a visible sign of our unity both with Christ and with one another. And then later on in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul rebukes them for being divided. And you can read more about that back in chapter 3 of his letter. And even though they were divided, they were continuing to celebrate the Lord's Supper without having reconciled those differences. And he goes on to identify the conduct of wealthy people who would go ahead and and eat their meal without waiting for the whole church to assemble. And they scoffed their own food and they did not share with those who had little. In fact, they'd brought so much that they were even getting tipsy on the wine that they had provided. And he said that if they're too hungry to wait for everyone before eating, they should eat something at home before they come. So his instructions about how to have communion, which we often turn to uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, are nestled within his corrections about the whole love feast. And his message is if you're not obeying the command of Jesus in your community together, then you also have a problem with how you're proclaiming the covenant of Jesus. When you can't say that you have accepted this free gift of eternal life and been brought into God's eternal family... If you're not actually treating one another like a real family. So as Paul addresses the Corinthians, he's addressing what they do in what they call the love feast, the whole meal that they share together, as well as bringing them back to what communion means because that's the way that they'll be corrected in all of their community life together. And according to Paul, this is such a serious matter to God that God is causing some of them to become sick and even to die so that this behaviour might be prevented from festering and growing in the church. So this is serious stuff. Yeah, they're coming together for a meal, but don't be flippant about this. Don't be irreverent in the way that you participate, because what you do together and how you do it together and how you treat one another in the midst of that and your awareness of Christ in the midst of that matters. And I think many of us have experienced this reality for ourselves, haven't we? I mean, how we do our gatherings might be a bit different to what was happening in the book of Acts and in Corinth and in in other places. But when we've come together, haven't you experienced those moments where you've been deeply convicted of your sin as you've thought about communion and what it symbolises for us? And in that moment that we are often given and we really appreciate it when those who lead us in communion give us that time and space where we can talk to God about things in our lives that we know we need to confess... And, and receive his forgiveness for. We know we're forgiven. We need to s- experience it in the moment so that we can participate in communion reverently. But you may also have experience which is something that Paul really drives home in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, that sense of community. And when you know that, that your relationships with others aren't right, maybe it's how others have been treating you, maybe it's how you're treating them, usually it's both. Um, and you have that sense of, you know what, I'm not going to participate in communion right now because I'm not in right relationship with my brother or sister right now. And you can't divorce communion from the proclamation of what Jesus has done for us and the way he wants us to live as his people. They have to go together. The love feast celebrates the the command. The communion itself is mostly about the proclamation, but they are still one thing. And so I've experienced it, and I reckon some of you have as well, where you've said, you know, I'm just going to let that pass me by today because I need to sort out this love within my church family and make sure there's no barriers there before I can really receive that with gratitude and reverence. And that's exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians that they need to do. Now about a decade later we get Jude who is a brother of Jesus writing about false teachers and a uh, long subject there but the false teachers are basically saying look when it comes to Jesus his physical body and blood that, that wasn't really important it's what he said that matters um, and so naturally they weren't thinking that communion mattered very much at all because it is all about what Jesus did with his body and his blood and so um, they had a wrong idea about communion and there was all sorts of other issues that uh, were a part of that for example they said well since that didn't matter for Jesus doesn't matter for us do what you want with your body doesn't matter your spirit will go to heaven in the end you'll be fine and Jude writes to them and says that's lies. That is nonsense. And as part of that, as he writes to Christians, he says this, these people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. It's just one little line in his letter, but it's a good line to remember. Well, these people were brought in, uh, they were teaching stuff that was wrong about Jesus and about how we ought to live. and and, Paul said, uh, and Jude says, hey, as they eat with you in this love feast environment where you're meant to be remembering Jesus and the agreement we have with him, and you're meant to be loving one another well, you need to discern the fact that they don't fit there. They shouldn't be allowed there. Because what they're actually trying to get you to do and to believe and to to live like doesn't fit with the meaning of what this is about. And it's not loving to include them. Actually, you're just enabling them not only to continue down their own destructive paths, but to do what he very um, vividly describes here. To be dangerous reefs, uh, people who could shipwreck the faith of others. So there's a discernment that is being asked for in how you include people in this celebration of the love feast and the the, uh, ritual of communion because it's not always appropriate for all people. And just because we love people doesn't mean we ought to gloss over that fact. If we love them, we'll we'll emphasise that fact. You've got to know what communion is and you must be sincere in how you participate. There's a discernment that is required. So the New Testament picture of communion is Christians gathering together, one family, joyfully eating and drinking. You know that mayhem that we had earlier in the service where we were greeting people as though we were welcoming them into our homes? There's that element of effusive joyfulness. It is so great to be together. From the youngest to the oldest, from the newest to those who have been around the longest, uh, from all the different types of personality types and music preferences and dress standards and whatever, it is just so good to be a part of this family of God where we're not relying on any of that stuff for our unity. Our unity is found in Jesus. And it's freely available to all of us because his death is enough it's a penalty for our sins it shows us the reality of God's love which is bigger than anything we could compare it to and it reminds us that we are all belong here and in the midst of that let's take that seriously and reverently let's not take it for granted let's not allow anything to creep into our gatherings that kind of takes away from the message of just how amazing and important the proclamation of Jesus's death and resurrection is. As we wrap up today's study on communion, I want to tell you just about something that happened between 50 and 300 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. So the church has been going for a while. Because you might ask, well, why is it that we don't do it in the way that it was happening in the book of Acts or in the city of Corinth when Paul wrote to them? And in all those other places where they had this love feast and communion was just part of the meal. And what would it be like if we said, well, everyone's bringing food on Sunday and then we'll pause and eat. Uh, communing together as part of that would that be cool I don't know you might think so but it might be a question why do we do it separately from the meal well as you read about in Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, it wasn't always being done properly it wasn't always being done reverently and as you can picture um, how many homes are represented just in the people who are here today there's a bunch of them right Um, And we're all at different stages of faith. So how it happens in your home as you invite some Christian brothers and sisters around to your place might be different to how it happens in somebody else's home. And as the church grew and numbers increased and there naturally became more systems to keep things organised and to appoint leaders who could be responsible and could be trusted, there was this recognition of we we need kind of a a standard, we need a a uniformity in how we approach communion. So um, that was one reason why they said, okay, well, let's celebrate communion all together as a whole church and then we'll go off to different houses and we'll have our love feast. Does that make sense? That's kind of just a natural thing that you would do. Let's make sure we do communion, the proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection, what it means for us together then split off and enjoy your love feast together in homes. It's just more practical and simple to do it that way. And that way the elders of the church can know that there's no kind of false teaching creeping in, that maybe people are being discerning in how they're celebrating communion. So that was one reason. There's a whole bunch of other reasons that that happened. But what we see happening over the next 50 to 300 years is the church becomes more and more formal. For example, they start being recognised as an official religion in the Roman Empire. They start being allowed to own property. So they have church buildings. We're not just meeting in homes anymore. And that changes the whole dynamic. So there's this natural move away from the love feast, this shared meal, being celebrated and communion being part of that. So that's what I want us to think about today as we wind up. There's a lot more we need to talk about when it comes to communion. Uh, We need to talk about the fact that there are all these different streams of the church and what they think this bread and this wine is, is very different. So what is that all about? We need to explore some of those things in more detail. But where I'd like to start today is just to think about the very beginnings of what communion felt like and how it was conducted. Jesus doing it in the context of a meal. The early church celebrating in the context of a meal. What would we like to do as a church family to try and keep that spirit alive in how we do communion? When Churches of Christ got going, and we are not an old uh, denominational movement at all, Uh, we're a fairly recent product of history. But one of the things that uh, was behind that was that people uh, wanted to go back to the very, as much as possible, let's try and be as similar to the early church as we can be. Um, And so that's, that's very much part of our DNA. Now, you've got to be really careful about that. Just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean it always wants you to copy it. All right? So it doesn't mean just copying everything that they did and the way they did it. But at the same time, we just naturally do what comes you know, normal to us in our culture. And it's really healthy to look at the way the early church did and go, OK, does the Bible command us to do that? In that case, we'll just do it. Um, does the Bible not command it but describe it? And we look at it and go, that would be really cool. I think there's some value in that. In which case, do that too. So that's what we want to do today. Is There's some ways that we've looked back at communion and gone, I kind of like this idea that in communion we are proclaiming the new covenant. The bread and the cup are all about that. But it's meant to be set in this context where there's this warm, effusive family life. How do we make sure we've got that too? Because if we don't have both happening, we don't have what the early church had. And I think they had something really special. So what could that look like? What could it look like for us to make sure every time we pass these elements around, we're doing it in this context of I love these people. This is my family. These are the people who helped me out when I was in financial trouble. These are the people who opened their homes when I was homeless. These are the people who asked how I was going when I'd missed several services because I was just feeling so down. This is the group who loves me and that's the context in which I'm taking this bread and this cup that says God loves you this much. And he's brought you into a family that can love each other that way too. I think we could take some steps there. I wonder what that will look like for you as you allow the Holy Spirit to convict you about that. Let's pray.